0: Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, listeners. This is topic three, the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, part three of the fourth series, Treasures of Kansas City. If this is your first time listening, then be welcome. So glad that you could join us. Um, Please pause here, go back and listen to parts one and two of the Nelson Atkins, and then you can listen to this episode. And after this one, I hope that you will go back and listen to topics one and two of this series, Topic one was the Western Auto Building. There are two parts to that. And topic two is the Country Club Plaza. That actually has three parts. Um, The first part is JC Nichols, and then part two is labeled part one, and part three is labeled part two. It's a little bit confusing. I'm thinking about renaming it, but um, let me know what you think. This episode is coming out much later than I had originally planned. I'm sorry for the delay. I had two deaths in my family recently, um, within just a couple of days of one another. So I've been dealing with a lot of grief and, you know, it's hard to feel motivated to work on stuff. Um, truthfully, there's probably been a little bit of depression there as well. Just been out of funk for a few weeks, but uh, I am feeling better now. And, uh, I've also been very busy with work and guess what? I caught COVID again, uh, again, what? Weren't you vaccinated, Laura? Yes. Yes, I was. Yes, to both of those. I did have it before. Um, so before you start crowing about you were right, vaccines don't work, allow me to point out a couple of things. The first being that the first time I had COVID last September, I was very, very sick for 10 full days. This time I was tired and fatigued for a few days. This could have been the start of the plague or it could have just been grief. I don't know. Um... And then I felt like I had a bad cold for like half a day. Honestly, I woke up and then by noon it was gone. Um, I decided to get tested anyways, just in case you never know. I didn't want to spread it to anyone. And that's how I found out it was COVID. Um, so one other thing to point out is I got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which is only like 65 to 70% effective. So there was a 30% chance I could catch it again. Um, And so while I felt really bad for a few hours, it's nowhere, nowhere near as bad as the first time. So the vaccine did what it was supposed to do. Uh, And if you're thinking, well, sounds like 70% is not enough. I kind of agree with you. Um, But guess what? Every other vaccine is 95, 96, 99% effective. Um, And one of them was just verified by the FDA. I don't remember which one that was. I want to say Pfizer. So, anyways, please get vaccinated if you're not yet. Um, All of that is to say, that's why this episode's been delayed. Thank you for your patience. I'm so glad that you've returned to listen to this episode. And I have some very exciting announcements at the end, so please make sure you listen all the way through. Okay, recap. Miss Atkins died in 1911, Mr. Nelson in 1915, Mrs. Nelson in 1921, and their daughter, Laura Kirkwood... In 1926 and then her husband Erwin in 1927. Their family friend Mr. Rosell, died in 1923. All of these people w- wanted an art museum and they left money in their wills for it. A lot of money. So between 1911 and 1927 people are dying and leaving money for the museum. The trustees of all these various estates finally decided to pull the resources in 1926, just before Irwin died. Construction of the museum began in 1930 on the former Nelson family estate, known as Oak Hall, which they had to tear down, which I'm still sad about. You heard all about that in the last episode. And the museum officially opened to the public in December 1933. Yay! I want to take some time and talk more about the architecture. I gave you a brief overview at the end of the last episode. Uh, Remember, it's neoclassical in design, um, largely built out of Indiana limestone. And originally, it was two museums, uh, just designed to look like one. But there's a lot of detail in this architecture. It's really fascinating. Essentially, as Wolferman states they often juxtaposed native materials and Midwestern themes with classical motifs and European marbles. So you'll see that as I further describe this to you, and this is what fascinates me, is this mixture of classical and Western. Because when you say it out loud like that, you're like, no, that doesn't work. But somehow in this particular building, it works. Quote, the original... 388 by 175 foot structure extends over more than a city block and is as high as a six-story office building altogether 32 gigantic classical columns each 40 feet high and five feet in diameter distinguish the four facades of the greek style building End quote so charles keck's limestone panels line all four walls beginning on the eastern wall And then moving to the north, and then the south, and then the west. And why they didn't go in a circle, I don't know. Um, But it's like it's not some patterned, right? And it kind of bothers me. Um, That's probably just the touch of my OCD, but still. Um, Christie very rarely points out that, quote, in 1933, Keck's reliefs showing the, quote, pageant of civilization's conquest. were lauded as dramatic testimony to the tenacity of the white man and his belief in manifest destiny. But in the 21st century, the panels depicting the slaughter of Native Americans and buffalo caused more outrage than inspiration. So yeah, I'm definitely going to circle back to that at the end of the episode. Above each of these reliefs reside adopted quotes from famous artists and philosophers, and the overarching theme among them is the thought that art is, quote, Enduring beauty and eternal reason." Frankly, that phrase is gorgeous, profound, and evocative. It's just too bad that it's in a book rather than in the museum itself. There are 45 steps that lead up to the south entrance. This was designed to be the main entrance, but I guess at some point the northern entrance became the main entrance. Personally, I always enter from the south unless I um, parked in the garage, which rarely happens because it's like 10 bucks and street parking is free. Um, but if I do park in the garage, then I come up through the basement um, and through the new wing, which I I think that's technically the eastern side of the museum. Um, that's aside from our story. So the southern doors are framed by six ionic columns, Quote, on either side of this southern entrance are classical bronze vases seven and a half feet high and each weighing 1,500 pounds. Inscribed on these vases are figures representing the Four Seasons. End quote. There are another six ionic columns on the eastern facade in front of three bronze doors above which says the Atkins Museum of Fine Arts. These magnificent doors feature 24 panels inscribed with the words from Hiawatha which is an epic poem by wordsmith William Wadsworth Longfellow and these doors were designed by Keck's brother Max. So when I looked up this poem um, I ended up finding a recording of it on YouTube and I was like cool let's give it a quick listen no 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 the recording is four hours long. I'll post a link to it, but y'all, I did not have time to be listening to four hours of that. I did, however, find a really good description slash analysis of it on the National Park Service website because Longfellow's house is a historic site under the protection of the parks. So here's a snippet from their website about the poem. Quote, In this epic work, Longfellow set out to honor and praise Native American heritage but at the same time he laid the foundation for stereotypes and a false assumption that indigenous culture was dying in America. His intent, worn out in his creation, was to mold Christian values, European literary structure, and Native American culture into a single great, quote, American, end quote, epic to rival those of the European classics. In so doing, Longfellow brought positive attention to the and I'm sorry, here I'm not going to say this right. Ojibwe? Er, yeah, I totally butchered that. I am so, so, so sorry. Um, I've never been able to figure out how to pronounce this. It's O-J-I-B-W-E. Um, so to those people, and helped spur the preservation of some elements of their culture. However, he also Europeanized their legends and assimilated their culture into the American mainstream. Because of this, Hiawatha has a complicated legacy that has impacted perceptions of Native Americans in this country for over 165 years, end quote. Okay, so that's all from the National Park Service site. And I think it's makes the, the poem even more interesting. So now I really want to read it um, and read because I can read a lot faster than I can listen to it. Um, and partially... I want to know, you know, more about this problematic history that it has um, inspired, instigated, um, helped further. Um, I read everywhere on social media nowadays about how indigenous cultures in America and around the world, uh, all the struggles they face because of systematic racism. Last summer, I uh spent time educating myself about systematic racism as experienced by Blacks. Um, so now I would like to focus on Indigenous people just, you know, to learn, to better emphasize with their struggles and be a better person. Um, but I also kind of want to read this poem because I have family that is Indigenous and maybe it would help me, you know, connect with them a little deeper. All right, that was a nice little ramble, way off topic. So, getting back on course, on the top of the north wall there is a zodiac. Um, Actually, there are a series of zodiacs. Um, The signs for William, Ida Nelson, and Laura, and Erwin Cookwood, and there are some oak leaves as well in honor of Oak Hall. And I think that's lovely, but I'm also like, why didn't Mary get a zodiac? She's just as important. If you enter through the main door on the north side, or even if you enter through the south, you enter into Kirkwood Hall, same as you do back then when it first opened. Uh, there are some new entrances now, but we'll get to when those were created much later. Y'all, if you've never been, I'm going to have photos up. You have to see how amazing and awe-inspiring this entrance is. When you walk in, it's this like this big open You can't even call it a hall, not by our modern definition. But it separates the two wings of the Nelson Gallery and the Atkins Museum of Fine Arts. It has 12 massive, 93-foot-tall columns of black Pyrenees marble. Ten of the twelve are in the Corinthian style, which means it's really fancy on top, right? And then two of them are composite style. And composite is actually a bit fancier than Corinthian, But the thing is, is composite is not um, Greek. Corinthian is Greek. Composite, it turns out, is Roman. And it combines the Corinthian and Ionic styles. I'm not sure why they did just one pair that's composite and the rest are all Corinthian. Again, the symmetry is off (laughs) and it makes me twitch just a little bit. And it also has a ton of skylight. So I always think of skylights as really modern like 1980s modern architectural feature but they've been around for a century or more crazy right Anyway at the entrance of both wings so when you're in the hall and you look to you know either side there are columns made of gold colored marble that are quarried from St. Genevieve Missouri and those are at the entrances to the different galleries um, you remember Roselle, right? The lawyer. He's the only one who left money in his will for the maintenance and upkeep of the museum. So on the western side of Kirkwood Hall within the Nelson Gallery is Roselle Court. And this is a really cool little fact. It's actually located exactly where Oak Hall once stood. Quote, the court is 90 feet square, decorated with columns and arches in the style of 15th century Italy. The walls, floors, and columns, however, are of Mankato stone from a Michigan quarry, end quote. Um, Why they decided to do all of this Greek stuff and then all of a sudden they throw in 15th century laterally, again, I don't know. All of this stuff is just so different. It shouldn't fit, but it does. In the very center of this courtyard is a really beautiful little fountain and it's shaped like a very large bowl. Found out it was originally built and like installed within Emperor Hadrian's baths. So now a a Roman bath is not our kind of bath. It's a communal thing. So this fountain was in his bath um, that he built, designed there's this whole thing about European emperors and how actually it's common for all kinds of Kings and emperors in the ancient world. Anyways, um, you went to war and that's how you got glory, but then you also built stuff. And that was also a sign of, you know, the, how good a ruler you were. Um, and the, the Roman baths are really beautiful. Look them up sometime. Anyways. So we like somebody excavated it and we ended up with it. It's just really cool. Um, the mirror of the court on the Atkins side of the museum is not another court, but a very large marble. And if you are keeping track, this is one of the very few times Wolferman does not provide information on the specific type of stone, but it's a very large marble staircase. And it's the kind of staircase that has actually two of them on either wall, right? And then it goes up to a landing across the top. Think like, Beauty and the Beast, that moment when she's walking down the stairs to the Beast. Well, actually, I guess it's not a great example because they converge into a single one. Okay, but I think you know what I'm talking about, right? The two on the sides. And the walls of this stairway are covered by 11 murals, which were painted by Andrew T. Schwartz. These murals depict, quote, the history of art from cavemen through the Italian Renaissance, end quote. Mister Schwartz was born in Louisville, Kentucky, in eighteen sixty-seven. Sorry, in eighteen ninety, at the age of twenty-three, he began to study under Frank Duvenick at the Cincinnati Art Academy, and then um, H. Siddons Mowbray. I'm not sure if I said that right. At the Art Students League in New York, and I don't know who they are or what they did, but they were a big deal for their time. Um, at He eventually got a scholarship and he studied abroad in Europe for three years. By the time he came home, he was considered one of, if not the most, talented muralist of his time. He painted murals for the Courthouse of New York and the Kansas City Life Insurance Building, among many, many others, of course, in addition to the murals that he did here at the Nelson. He also painted landscapes, which I found some of them online. They're kind of nice. He died in 1942. Also on the Atkins side is the Atkins Auditorium. So when it opened, the museum opened in 1933, it was the American Indian Room. Today, Native American art is on display upstairs, um, very near, like the galleries right next to the American Art Gallery. So when I spoke with Wolferman, For the Patreon episode, she said one of the things that was always special and progressive about the Nelson Atkins Museum was its willingness to display objects of Native American material culture as art. At the time, it was much more common for such objects to be displayed in a museum of natural history. In fact, you still see a lot of this today. Uh, One such example is the Hall of Plains Indians at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Now, the definition of natural history, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is the scientific study of plants or animals, especially as concerned with observation rather than experiment, and presented in popular form rather than academic form. Okay, so the key words here are plants and animals. So by displaying Native American objects in a natural history museum, you're saying that they're not human. And the fact that our museum acknowledged indigenous Americans as humans is just, like she said, it's very progressive. And it's something that all museums should do. Two other progressive features of the museum are less conceptual and ethical and more physical in nature. They are the lighting system and the heating and cooling systems. Now you're probably thinking air and light. What is so special about air and light? Well, they are extremely important considerations in museums, especially in art museum, because the UV rays from the sun can damage works of art as well as fabrics. And temperature and humidity must be kept at a steady, usually a kind of a low temperature. Or again, rapid changes in temperature and humidity will warp into great artifacts. The recommended settings are 65 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 to 20 degrees Celsius. And about 45% humidity. Some objects even require more specific control settings, so if you see those objects on display, most of the time they'll remain in storage, but if you see them on display, they'll be in a temperature and humidity controlled glass case. Okay, so air and light are important, but what specifically about these systems was so special, I'm glad you asked. And if you didn't ask me, then why not? You should have asked. It was really common at the time to simply use natural light within a museum, right? However, the Nelson-Atkins Museum consisted of artificial lights, quote, hidden under eaves and behind neutral glass ceilings, end quote, that could mimic any sort of daylight without the harmful effects. And the air systems were the highest quality of the time. I am no doubt that they have maintained their standards. Lastly, while... Not a progressive move per se, the museum has always operated as an educational institution beyond simple exhibits. From year one, y'all, education has been a major component of this museum. Paul Gardner, who we will come back to in the next episode, was the initial champion of the educational department, according to Wolferman. He advocated for both an adult lecture series and regular school tours, and the trustees agreed. But if you'll remember back to all the discussion about the wills and who left money for what, nobody left money for an educational program, so they had to get creative. At first, Gardner himself gave the weekly lectures on Wednesday nights. Um, and then after several years, other experts joined in. The, really, the biggest issue they had was the school groups. So first, they had trouble getting the kids to the museum. I guess school buses weren't a thing at the time. Uh, from what I went, read, it sounds like the idea of a school bus didn't really begin until 1939. Remember, this is just open, so it's 1933. Um, but also, school buses weren't really standard issue, or at least weren't really widely used until 1950-ish. Um, so, because they, they didn't have the buses, the schools decided to use the streetcar. Uh Nelson had included streetcars in his neighborhood designs, and there was one that ran right past the museum. But the schedules didn't fit. You know, it's like our modern bus schedule. They only come at specific times. So, Paul Groner, who was the president of the Kansas City Transit Company, agreed to change the schedule to feed the school's needs. And each kid only had to pay a nickel to ride. How cool is that? I like it when people work together like that. The second issue they had was who was giving going to give the tour. They really didn't start off with a huge staff, right? And the answer ended up being the Junior League. So Mr. Gardner had ended up having lunch with this woman from the Junior League. And she's like, hey, why don't we do it? And he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So the Junior League of Kansas City, I had no idea what this was. I had to look it up. It's actually a branch of an international organization, um, but... The branch here in Kansas City was founded in 1914 and it's a nonprofit organization for women who want to volunteer. So you join and then they have partnerships with all these other organizations and you can pick, you know, where you want to serve. That actually sounds pretty cool. So these field trips began in late nineteen thirty four under the direction of Frances O'Donnell. This was less than a year after the museum opened. Apparently they found money somewhere in the budget to hire her, probably under general staff budget item or something like that, you know, and I really want to tell you all about her, but that is going to be the end of today's episode. Thank you all for joining me today as we explore the architecture and history of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. In the next episode, we will delve into some of the amazing people behind the museum in its early years and the changes the institution experienced under their direction. But to conclude, I do want to return to that quote from Wolferman that I had at the beginning. Quote, In 1933, Keck's reliefs showing the, quote, pageant of civilization's conquest, end quote, were lauded as dramatic testimony to the tenacity of the white man and his belief in manifest destiny. But in the 21st century, the panels depicting the slaughter of Native Americans and Buffalo caused more outrage than inspiration, end quote. I mean, Look, just read the first half of that to begin with. It's a testimony to the tenacity of the white man and his belief in Manifest Destiny. If y'all haven't learned by now, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to it later in this podcast. But Manifest Destiny was crap, alright? That's not destiny. I think the her quote also points to a good summary of the message that the architects and the artists who designed and built this museum were trying to express. And and an actual art historian could probably say this better, but I think it essentially comes down to something like this building before you encapsulates the history of mankind and is the heir to the classical world. It stands as a testament to the glory of American culture and Western expansion. And in truth, the architecture only emphasizes Western culture, but in a Eurocentric world, that's all that matters, right? Hashtag sarcasm. And because this is America, and we've never done anything wrong, and Manifest Destiny was really our destiny, y'all. Again, hashtag sarcasm. Sorry, not sorry for the uh, cynicism of my analysis of the architecture, but it's really pretty. I really do enjoy it and enjoy looking at it. But when you analyze the details, you start to notice stuff. All right, that really is the end of today's episode. Thank you all for listening. My main source for this is the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art A History by Christy Wolferman. It was published, well, I have the second edition that I'm using, and it was published in 2020. Her first edition was published in 1993. Um, The 2020 edition is really great. Y'all will love it. Her writing style is pretty nice, pretty comprehensible, and it's got some really lovely full-color photos. So, yeah, y- you guys will love it. Other sources are Pendergast, KC.org, the Missouri Encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia Britannica, KCHistory.org, and the Kansapedia by the Kansas State Historical Society. You'll also want to check out the Nelson Atkins website. It's www. Let me try that again. www.nelsonatkins.org. They, they just have a really great website. They have some information about the history of the museum on there and all the stuff that they do, their mission and all of that. If you want to listen to the Hiawatha poem that I mentioned, you can go to YouTube or I will have a link on my website. I'll also have pictures of the museum on my website and social media. For merchandise, visit www.zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. Um, got a lot of stuff on there. I even created some new stuff this summer like t-shirts and hats. Yay! Make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I am Homegrown KC on all of them. And this summer, I started Homegrown KC Adventures on the first weekend of June visiting some of my favorite locations around Kansas City and some new ones, sharing photographs of those on my social media pages. I hope y'all have been enjoying that. Um, if not, to go check it out. I got some good photos on there. It's been really fun for me um, and a great excuse just to see more of the city. I've been to Loose Park, the Plaza, the Powell Gardens. I really wanted to get out to the Kaufman Gardens this summer. That didn't happen. Um... But I'm hoping to do some historic cemeteries next month, so check that out, y'all. If you have any um, places for me to check out, any questions, comments, concerns, you can message me on Instagram or Facebook. Send me a tweet or email me at homegrownkcpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. My website is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I know I'm still super behind. One day I will get all of the pages set up like I promised. I hope you'll also check me out on Audia at Audia.io, then search Homegrown KC. You create a profile, it is free, and I'm sure you'll find some other audio content on there that you enjoy. I am also on um, Audible now, which is exciting. I hope you will consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can do so by subscribing to Patreon.com slash HomegrownKC or RedCircle.com slash HomegrownKC. You sign up, you create an account, subscribe to HomegrownKC. You'll be charged that day and then on the first of every month afterwards. It's $5 a month. Everything that you give goes back to the show. If you become a supporter, then you get an item from the store valued at $5 or less. A shout-out here on the show. Thank you for your continuing support, Bjorn and Joan. Uh, Joan, I think I might owe you an acknowledgement for the last episode as well. If so, I'm sorry I missed you. You also get access to exclusive bonus content. Uh, The last episode that I uploaded was with author Christy Wolferman, who volunteered at the Nelson-Atkins Museum for several years, and then she became the author of which is pretty much the only definitive published history of the institution. Basically, she knows everything. Um, Again, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, because of personal issues, um, two of the other episodes I had scheduled this summer have been delayed, Um, so I'm currently scheduled to speak with Andrew Gustafson from the Johnson County Historical Society in a few weeks. And I'm working on nailing down a time to speak with Brian Burns from the Jackson County Historical Society. Um, So become a patron. You can have access to those episodes. I've had great conversations with people in the past, so I think these future ones will be just as good. And here is the big announcement y'all have been waiting for. I have decided to re-add the Union Station as a topic for the series. I previously announced that I had removed the topic because... I thought that I would, you know, end this series much sooner and then I could go on to a new series. That's not happened. So, uh, new plan. It's not going to change again. I promise. New plan is we're going to re-add Union Station. And this series is basically just going to last all year. Um, I don't foresee ending Union Station until December. Hopefully, you know, by December. Thanks goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo, to the Dear Mrs. for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music for the show, and to local libraries, which enabled me to gather my research. And thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.
1: seem to shake this feeling, and I can seem to get you off my mind. Gotta love my nerve forever, and I know that it's now or never. Try and see this through. Oh, loose ends up with.